Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, how's it going? And if you are a returning subscriber, hey, how's it going? Hope you're having an amazing day. See what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button. Join us in, as we change the world. I am here with Linda, with Linda Trevino. She is a distinguished, uh, distinguished professor of organizational behavior and ethics at uh, the Smeal College of Business at Penn State. I've uh, seen one of your talks. I was totally nerding out. Uh, listening to all the things you were talking about. And I just knew that you would be a phenomenal guest and uh, we could spend a little time together diving into your background and how you kind of see the world. How's it going today, Linda? Going great. Sun is out. It's, um, I think, in the 50s in Pennsylvania. So that's that's good. Wow, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's almost summer, summer weather in Pennsylvania. Do you think this is the last, <laughs> you think this is the last uh, cold snap that you think that's behind you now or what? I think it might be the last snowstorm. We had one on Saturday. Wow. Well, you know, it's a, uh, you know, we're getting towards spring when those last snows don't stick around too long, right? I don't know where you are, Nick. I'm in Charlotte. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So in Charlotte, if they even hear that snow may be coming, the whole city shuts down. People are filling their bathtubs up with water. They're pulling all the milk off the shelves in the, uh, the grocery store. Think- Everyone's ready for Armageddon every time. I lived in North Carolina for nine years. So Oh, you did? Okay. So you yeah. know what I'm coming from. So anyways, um, let's start talking about your specialty. I love uh, the study of organizational behavior. I love ethics and the intersection of those two things. Um, mm-hmm. What is kind of your most exciting topic right now? What's really top of mind? What's, what's getting you excited in your current day-to-day? Yeah. So a couple of things, but... Probably the biggest one is one that I've been focusing on for a few years uh, with a former doctoral student of mine, uh, and that is what we're calling ethical voice. So people speaking up in the organization about ethical issues, which is something that I think keeps a lot of ethics and compliance officers up at night. They know that employees um, know what's going on. Yep. <laughs> and they want them uh, to share that. They have hotlines and other you know, kinds of processes available. And um, we know that a lot of the time people don't. Now, we're actually focused, a lot of people have looked at you know, what influences people to speak up and not. So we kind of know that. But what we were interested in is if people do, then what happens? Right. So consequences of ethical voice. And, and we're finding some really interesting things. What are you finding? Well, for one thing, um, so one study we did, we just looked at speaking up in the context of a work group mm-hmm. and you know, with not so much to a supervisor, but in the context of a work group to try to shift the direction of decision-making. And what we found was that uh, one could do that. Um, the the uh, decision-making did move in an ethical direction um, by raising ethical awareness in the group. So a lot of times when you're talking about a business decision, you know, people aren't thinking ethics. They're thinking Outcome. business. Yeah. They're thinking business, right? But if you start using ethical language and you um, sort of shift the conversation a bit, you can raise people's ethical awareness and have them uh, thinking about it in different terms. Um, and then we also found that the way you present your case matters. So if you present it in a way that shows some concern and empathy for, let's say, consumers who might be harmed, um, that works better than to be morally outraged and show you know, anger. Um, people have a, you know, a reaction, negative reaction to that, a defensive reaction to that. Um, so the other thing is that what we found was that um, figuring out a way to make this 
probably is a no-brainer, but figuring out a way to make the business case for the ethical outcome. So, you know, gee, if we do it the way you want to do it, then, you know, what could happen to our reputation Mm -hmm. if we did it that way versus what if we thought about, um, you know, changing our product this way and selling it as a premium or organic or whatever, you know, kind of product it is. Um, And, uh, you know, that could actually differentiate us from our competitors, you know, so you can make the, uh, the business case for the ethical argument. And that seems to help. So what you're saying is that marrying the sort of business case to the ethical sort of argument is relatively more persuasive in the sort of business realm. Yeah. And it's not either or, you know, what, what we found. So we actually used in this particular study, we used student groups. Um, They were in entrepreneurship classes and they're used to working with cases and making decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, we video recorded all of their interactions and then were able to analyze those interactions. Yeah, it was really one of the most fun things I've ever done was to watch those, uh, those videos. Um, But, you know, seeing how they, you know, work their way through these discussions. And um, I mean, we also found that if they, if somebody wanted to, to make the just straight bottom line decision that was going to make them the most money and not worry about ethics at all, um, then they were more likely to engage in a process we refer to as moral disengagement. They used moral disengagement mechanisms to, so instead of being having their moral awareness raised, they were um, saying, well, uh, you know, it's really up to the, you know, sort of buyer beware, it's really up to the customers, it's, it's their yeah. problem, you know, if, if they're not paying attention um, and it's not our responsibility, you know, it's somebody else's responsibility to, to worry about that. And so there were, uh, there are eight of these moral engagement mechanisms that we know about, and we were finding lots of examples in the groups that made the less ethical decisions. We found lots of evidence of moral disengagement, which suggests to me that if you could train people to be on the lookout for those, you know, when, when somebody says this, you know, red flag should go up, you know, that it's kind of a, wait a minute, let's think about what we're doing here. Um, I love that. Yeah. I think that there are implications for uh, how you could train people to raise ethical awareness, uh, try to avoid moral disengagement mechanisms you know, have people be aware of them so that they're not buying those kinds of arguments. Um, And that, of course, is assuming that the organization wants people to make the ethical decision, right? Yeah, which sometimes Um, is a a big leap, depending on the organization or the leadership on an actuality basis, yeah. So one other cool finding in a different study that we are, um, that we just recently published is that when people observe somebody who steps up and, um, you know, makes the ethical case, they feel something that we refer to as moral elevation. What is that? And that is an emotional feeling. So it, if you think back to a time when you saw somebody do something awesome, you know, it makes me think, as CNN used to do, I don't know if they're still doing this, once a year they do these awards for people who are incredibly philanthropic right. or, you know, and, and they'd call, they'd tell their stories and they'd call them up and you watch it and you're just like, Oh my God, I wish I were like that person. You know, that's yeah. an amazing 
healthy person. And it like so, reestablishes your like hope in humanity or something. Yeah. And you know, what I sometimes tell my students is that, you know, sometimes you think you're the only one sitting in the room who has this thought, but actually you're probably not. And if you have the courage to say it, other people might actually uh, support you if they feel like they can. And even if they can't support you, they might feel that, that they really admire you and respect you for what you just did or said. And, and that's what we found. We found that more than we expected. And um, we found less threat than we expected. Um, so that was really interesting. What does that mean? As well. Less threat well, than we expected. Well, if somebody speaks up, um, let's say in a work unit, and it could be perceived as threatening, right? Because first of all, you're speaking up about something that I didn't, that I also knew about, right? So does that threaten my sort of sense of myself as a moral being? Or it could be something that the group had decided to do. And so, you know, and you're raising an issue about it. Or it could be that the the group actually depends on doing this unethical thing in order to make their numbers or, you know, so there are lots of reasons why ethical voice could be threatening to a person or a group. So that's actually a huge point, right? Cause this is kind of mm-hmm. relates in my mind to that uh, logical fallacy of loss aversion, where the fear of loss is greater for greater than yes. the desire for gain. Right. So our yeah. perception of a loss is greater than the perception for the gain based on how it's framed or even, you know, I mean, there's a ton of great research on that loss aversion. It's almost like there's this sort of like threat aversion and there's an inherent, if what, if what you're saying is true, then there's sort of an inherent uh, miscalculation of the actual threat that's maybe preventing the moral behavior from coming forward, which is a really interesting problem to solve because it actually could like open up the floodgates for, Right. You know, I think a lot of folks, so I love this. This is so interesting. Um, I think a lot of folks feel like they're, you know, Sisyphus pushing, pushing this rock, this moral rock up the hill. But if what you're saying is true, we're actually a lot closer to getting these moral workplaces that we all really want. If in fact, you know, um, the moral ele- elevation is there that we can get some ins- inspiration from the threat is less than what we think. Um, and there's presumably a lot more people who are probably thinking what we're thinking, right? A lot of right. people probably see the same wrongdoing and they're not necessarily like, oh, well, no big deal. They maybe just don't have the courage to step forward. And if that right. threat can be reduced by maybe, you know, helping folks, you know, elevate their, you know, moral awareness, as you said, or um, helping them to identify these eight sort of uh, moral disengagement mechanisms, we can probably get sort of some logarithmic uptick in the morality of our workplaces. It's probably just not a linear thing, which I think a lot of people think, or maybe a reverse parabolic thing, which a lot of people yeah. think. I don't know if I'm, you know, ready to jump to that conclusion, but well, I um, will. More more research is always required. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. <laughs> That's what we have to say. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've been doing this research with. Uh, woman named Angie Chen, who's at uh, National University of Singapore now, former doctoral student of mine. And um, so we're having a lot of fun with it. And, and I think it's really important work that yeah. uh, we hope to continue. Yeah. So that's one of the things that has me jazzed these days. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. I'm just really, um, I'm really zero, zeroing in on that, like that miss. Uh, calculation of the, of the threat, um, right? And I'd love yeah, for you. Yeah, I mean to- that was surprising to us too. I mean, we you know we're looking at consequences, and if you look at the whistleblowing literature, it's all about negative outcomes, retaliation. Totally. Um, but a lot of the whistleblowing literature is focused on you know reporting outside the organization, right? Right to to the news media or the government. Um, it's all kind of mixed together in there. And mm-hmm. so you, and you can't tease it apart because of the way the research was done. So we're looking at internal reporting only. We're not looking at, yeah, we're looking at, you know, 
inside the organization, which is where most of this happens. Um, and kind of leaving out, we're doing a review of the literature right now and we're, we're leaving out the external only kinds of studies because they're just different. Yeah, and, and they could be sort of characteristically different. Yeah, and they're threatening in a different way. Totally. They threaten the whole organization potentially. So, and I guess if those are sort of overweighted in the sort of scope of the research, uh, and the conclusions from that external-based like data set or population ends up informing how we view internal, we could be losing a lot of opportunity to drive forward the change that we think is or we hope is possible. Um, yeah, right. it's basically it's basically a yeah. type one error on those conclusions. It's pretty crazy. We'd have to. Uh, you know, even with these findings, have to convince employees that um, the consequences are not as dire as they think. Yeah. Because the other, the other thing that happens is that uh, there's a, a really famous, one of my favorite articles of all time uh, from social psychology called Bad is Stronger Than Good is the title. I don't know if you've seen that one. Mm -mm. But Basically, what he does, what they do is, is they review all the literature showing that negative information has more of an impact on, on us than positive information. It's similar to what you were talking about. Yeah, loss aversion kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, from a ethics and compliance management perspective, you know, if people hear one story about something right. bad that happened as a result of someone speaking up, that be can become an urban legend that lives on, you know, right. and you might, you might as well forget about um, convincing people that it's going to be safe for them. So, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, it is a challenge because at, I mean, at the base level, before any action is taken in the real world, there's some internal system that needs to be turned on, right? So we're dealing with like the hearts and minds and feelings of the individuals within our workplace. And for them to sort of be turned on as this sensor of risk or sensor of immorality or whatever you want to call it, they have to feel comfortable enough to do it. And there's so yeah. many things, so many stories, fables, rumors, urban legends, whatever you want to call them, in addition to maybe their own sort of workplace trauma, quote unquote, or baggage that they've brought or seen firsthand that really prevents them, it kind yeah. of does feel from a practitioner standpoint or from somebody who's actually in the trenches fighting the ethics and compliance game, that it's like a losing battle. Like, how do I actually get these people to overcome this fear that presumably we all want, right? Like we, who doesn't want an ethical workplace? All else equal, you know yeah. what I'm saying? I think, you know, the, the one way that comes to my mind that I would try is to find the positive outcome stories. So find this, you know, do the, do the version of the CNN awards, right? Where people who have spoken up, who did accomplish their goal are mm -hmm. rewarded in some, not, you know, necessarily compensated for it, but recognized and, you know, praised and, um, you know, have it become part of, of the legends of the organization. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so spot on. I mean, we learn through stories. There's so much there. It's a much more efficient way to convey a principle than it is right. to read a, a recipe or something. Right. Um, and when we sometimes engage with clients who want to do a speak up campaign or want to do a communication campaign to help really kind of get at the base foundation of their culture, how can we actually you know, how can we actually start to crowdsource risk management? So it's not just one person blocking all the shots, like, like a goalie in a soccer game. Um, we always talk about that. Like, like your, your culture is as much about what you reject as it is about what you celebrate. And if you're not celebrating, you have nothing on this side of That's the, right. uh, of That's the balance. Exactly. You're right. You're, you're, you're not showing the full dimension of like, Hey, like, remember those old comics of like goofus and gal and galleon or whatever, you know what I'm talking about? Where I think there there were old like I forget what it's from maybe it's from highlights or something, but they would be comics of 
Gallant, who was like the good kid, and they'd be showing an example of that good kid using manners. And then they would show uh, Goofus, who was like the bad kid, the bad example, right? And his feet would be on the counter, or he wouldn't be saying thank you for his gifts. And there was like hundreds of these comics, right? These are like, you know, these are very old. But if you're just, to your point, just doing the, you know, uh, bad is stronger than good approach of just talking about the negative or just leading with the stick, uh, you're not engaging both sides of the brain, for lack of a better term. You know what I'm saying? And you're leaving a lot of opportunity on the table and you're kind of end up kind of reinforcing this thing because people are really, people can be motivated, I think, by a fear or they can be motivated by sort of something more positive. And if you're, if we're engaging that sort of, uh, what did you call it? That, that moral elevation, that could probably be a stronger driver over the long term, especially if that moral threat is sort of reduced or eliminated or sort of more accurately conveyed to folks. Um, That can be a self-fulfilling like mechanism yeah. inside of an organizational culture. So I don't know if it, you know, if the numbers would work with, you know, in our context here, but I think in that paper that I was referring to, they talk about the fact that you need sort of nine positives to outweigh one negative. So um, I always tell my students, you know, if you're in a relationship and you really blow it. <laughs> Start digging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nine really good things <laughs> wow to get, to get it back in some kind of equilibrium so so i guess um, that does prove it that uh bad is stronger than good yeah it is right yeah and they have research from all different kinds of arenas to to demonstrate it's a really good paper yeah. And I mean, again, there's an old adage, once bitten, twice shy. I mean, it's kind of that it's, you know, once bitten, nine times shy, essentially. Um, but there's, right. it's not, it's not going to be a one for one thing, but that's probably a good ratio from a communications perspective. I just think there's so much opportunity. Like, look, we all have hotlines. We all have people that are doing workplace investigations. We all have this idea for what a, a, uh, a moral or integrity-based culture is. Those are all things that that we want in the economy that we're in now. But there's like this last mile, and I think it's a communication or a persuasion mile or whatever you want to call it, where we have to like start plucking the heart and mind strings of the workforce at large in order to really start actualizing and elevating this function, which can really be a strategic lever in this new economy. Agree. So- Talk to me a little bit. I'm not going to quiz you and make you name all eight, but what are some of these um, moral disengagement factors or like behaviors that, that, that you saw? Um, okay. So one is, um, well, I can't remember exactly which ones we saw yeah. in the study because it's been a couple of years now, but um, I'll tell, just tell you about some of them. So one I mentioned was attribution of blame. It's called attribution of blame. So you know, like in this case, blaming the customers and saying, look, it's on them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another couple of them have to do with responsibility. So one is displacement of responsibility to an authority figure. So my boss made me do it kind of thing, right? Got it. Um, another is diffusion of responsibility, which is, well, that was a group decision really wasn't mine. Yeah, we can't point to any individual. We are right. all kind of doing this. Yeah. Right. Wasn't my play. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Distortion of consequences is, you know, this isn't really that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, or um, I can't remember what this one is called, but we did it for we did it for a good reason. We're doing it greater for greater good, good the greater good fallacy yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. We're doing it for a good reason. Um, there's one called dehumanization, which doesn't, which I don't think we saw, and it it only applies in certain kinds of situations where maybe you're in a global mm-hmm. um, you know, business ethics decision and you uh, in fact I had a, a speaker in my class yesterday who talked about something that happened early in his career where uh, they were, they were having to move um, these containers. They were in Asia and they were having to move these containers up a mountain. And the only way to do it was having people 
like Sherpa type people. Like push it or something. Push it or carry it or whatever. And yeah. People would die doing it. And he's looking at, you know, a sheet of paper that that's telling him um, how they're accounting for that. And it was $180 per human life. Right. Well, <laughs> I might, I think I might think about that as an example of dehumanization. Yeah. Because some, you know, some beings are just not worth as much as others, right? Yeah. And or you hear about like, oh, well, if this part fails, we're going to have like a X percent incident rate when incident means like deaths or something. And it means somebody died. So that's yeah. another one. You, you just used it, euphemistic language. Got it. Got it. Right. So, so using neutral language when what you're really talking about is ethically charged. So those are just a few of them. It's so interesting. I mean, like nobody had to teach these students in your study. I mean, we're just kind of talking about like rationalizations. There's few things that are more efficient at rationalizing things than like the human mind, right? We can talk yeah. ourselves into things and we can say that's not that big of a deal. And it's interesting that they end up kind of like fractalizing all these different like approaches kind of fractalize into these, these different buckets. Well, yeah. And the other interesting thing about moral disengagement is that it was actually originally conceptualized as an individual difference um, that you can measure and that some people are more inclined toward it than others. Hmm. And that these eight different mechanisms kind of hang together. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And now it is, it can also be situation dependent, which makes perfect sense. Right. So if it's a situation where the boss told you to do something wrong, Mm -hmm. um, you know, displacement of responsibility is the one that makes the most sense. But if you look at individuals and their propensity to morally disengage, you can relate that. And there've been multiple studies that have done this. um, You can relate that to a variety of unethical behavioral outcomes, cheating and those sorts of things. You're saying that they cluster together and they tend to, there's like a coincidence of them. Yeah, there's a there's a correlation between having that trait, being high on that trait, and your inclination to behave unethically, to make unethical decisions, to cheat, to lie, those sorts of things. Do you think any of those propensities end up mapping to say like the big certain of the big five personality aspects? Like did, like did, um, do you, do you, well, if you were to there's, guess? There's 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 now a model of the big six. Oh, what's um, this, what, what is the, yeah, what's the so six? The sixth, sixth one, it's called the Hexaco model. And the sixth huh. one is honesty, humility. Interesting. And so that, that's probably the one that comes closest. Interesting. Um, there's another individual difference called moral identity, which um, you can also tie to ethical and unethical behavior. And that has to do with sort of how important being a moral person is to an individual right. in, their, in their hierarchy of identities. So, you know, I, I'm all sorts of things, right? I'm a professor and I'm a woman and I'm a wife and I'm, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but how important in my all of those identities is being a certain kind of ethical person. And so, so there are a variety of yeah, individual differences that you can look at. I have never found an organization willing to go that route, however. What do you mean? Well, for example, um, you know, when, when I was doing a lot of research on ethical leadership, um, quite a few years ago, there, um, I think it was the ethical leadership work. I was trying to get to, to do some research to see if we could, you know, predict who was more likely to be an ethical leader, you know, to become an ethical leader, 
um, and it makes sense to look at individual differences, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there was a real hesitancy, a real hesitancy to do that. It's just like, we don't want to label people yeah, I'll no. say, I might, I might not want to, you know, I might not like what the, uh, what the test says, you know? Yeah. Then, then what do I do? Right. Yeah. Do I, right. Yeah. So. Um, interesting. That's so interesting. I have, I found organizations, well, they're, they're very hesitant to let us do anything anymore, but particularly I think hesitant to look at any kind of individual difference, despite the fact that their organizations do these, you know, they do personality inventories when they hire people they do all this kind of stuff but i think the ethics Which is so interesting i mean that's such a from that. yeah yeah it is it seems like i mean it's definitely paradoxical right like it's not like you're you're introducing the idea of an assessment and they're like ah we don't do assessments the, the okay here here's a personality assessment when they do other personality assessments what you just don't want to look under this rock right exactly so you know, in the big five, there's conscientiousness, which right. is associated with um, deviance, deviance type behaviors. And now we have honesty, humility, um, which is associated with, um, you know, ethical and unethical behaviors. There's another individual difference um, measure uh, that she refers to as moral character. Um, so there's a lot of them that one could use. Right. And it, you know, you'd have to be careful, I think, how you use it. Um, and especially now, people are desperate to just hire warm bodies. So I don't that's know. That's a good point. To. Yeah, um, that's actually a good point. But, you know, there are other times when you could be more picky. And, you know, it huh. depends, depending on what kind of job you're putting someone into, right? You, you might want to be careful about putting someone into a position where they're totally unsupervised and, you know, you're sending them to some foreign country where there's lots of, you know, bribery. And, right. You know, um, I mean, I could give you a list of, of things that you might want to test that person on that would help you make decisions about, you know, where people might fit at least to start, you know, and then you can mm -hmm. kind of see how they do and, um, you know, follow them and kind of keep an eye on some people more than others, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's kind of an interesting time that, that we're in, cause there's all this sort of progress being made in your field and fields like yours. And then like, does it all fall flat because of the, the labor market? Do you know what I'm saying? And like, what are also the, I'm not saying your, your work falls flat, but I'm saying the speed with which uh, we're able to like implement them, like what's the strong force, you know? And also in terms yeah. of this great resignation that we're in, I'd love your opinion on this. It feels like the, the pebble or the rock has just been thrown into the pond. We don't really know what these like longer term ramifications are. How do you see all this working together? Well, um, let me just say, go back a moment and say that, um, way before we had the great resignation, <laughs> I saw a real hesitancy to use any of these tools. And, okay. Even when, even when it was a hirer's market or something. Oh yeah. Got it. They just, they're just very hesitant. I think it has to do with the fact that lawyers run a lot of, you know, these groups that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, they're just, just makes them nervous. Um, Interesting. In terms of the great resignation, um, I mean, personally, <laughs> get a little political here, I suppose, but um, I think we need to uh, bring in a lot more immigrants. My goodness, I mean, Penn State is training all sorts of wonderful people from all over the world. Yep. And then they end up having a big hassle trying to stay here. It's really yeah. crazy. It's a it's really a, crazy thing. The whole program's bizarre. But I'm not just talking about at that, you know, highly educated level. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, all the, levels, level, yeah. the level of the landscaper, the gardener, the housekeeper, mm -hmm. or the person who takes care of your grandmother, 
um, my goodness, I mean, we are shooting ourselves in both feet all over the place. Um, so I, I think, you know, pe- I mean, for a long time, people have said Americans don't want to do certain jobs. And I think it's true. Yeah. They, you know, they don't, they're used to having a slightly cushier lifestyle. And, um, you know, we've just been through a pandemic when people uh, who were doing the essential jobs were taken advantage of. Um, And, you know, some of these people are just burned out. They've had it. Uh, I don't blame them. So, yeah. You know, if they can get a job at, I don't know, Walmart instead of taking care of your grandmother, you know, or um, working out in the hot sun, you know, for the same amount of money, <laughs> they're, they're rational beings. Right. So I think as a, you know, as a country, we need to get our head on straight about that. Um, I think we should take as many Ukrainians as want to come. Mm-hmm. you know, it just goes on and on. So. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how things shake out and what new opportunities this all creates. Right. I mean, the pandemic created a bunch of new, you know, a bunch of new normals in terms of people working from home and hybrid stuff that probably would have taken 10 years. We were able to condense down quicker. So maybe this great resignation or this great re- recalibration or whatever you want to call it is going to allow for a reprioritization of, you know, jobs that folks can have, folks that can fill those jobs and so forth. Let me ask you, Linda, what, how did you get into this game? How did you get into the organizational behavior game? What is it about this whole thing that you spend uh, so much of your time trying to figure out that really resonated deeply with you? And what's the opportunity that you've seen in it? Yeah, so kind of a long story how I got into it. So um, I had been working I had experience managing people. I found it fascinating. I, I kind of call it people being crazy at work. So I, I was interested in psychology, but you know, not wanting to be a, you know a therapist or something like that. I was really interested in um, people, like I said, being crazy at work. So because <laughs> that's where we spend most of our time. You know, right. we spend a lot of time there, and so took me a while to figure, I knew I wanted to get a PhD. I wasn't sure what in and finally figured that out was going to be organizational behavior. And so I started that process, but then as a PhD student, you're trying to figure out, well, what's my niche going to be, Mm -hmm. you know, what am I going to focus on? Um, And I didn't really know, uh, but I, I had to, as part of this program, I had, I didn't have, I had never been to business school. This was, I was a French language and literature major. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, so I had to get a, essentially a, a mini MBA along the way. And mm-hmm. um, so I was taking a master's level organizational behavior class and the professor made us write a paper. And so I was looking around for a topic and I looked at the book, taught, you know, the chapters and I thought, well, they already know everything about these things. That's not mm-hmm. very interesting. Um, but it was the eighties and there were scandals all over the place. And so I thought, well, gee, I wonder if we know anything about why people behave this way, you know, why they do this stuff. And so I went and asked the professor if I could try writing about that. And she said, sure, that sounds good. So I did. And um, I had very good library skills and I did all kinds of research. And lo and behold, I found out that we hardly knew anything about that at that time. Cool. Very little. Yeah. So I wrote this paper and I turned it in and that was that. And then I went I uh, got my PhD at Texas A&M. I was living in Texas at the time. And the next class, one of the next classes that I took was a uh, research design class. We had to design a study. Well, I didn't know anything yet and hadn't had any real content classes yet, 
except I'd had that manage that master's level OB class mm-hmm. and I had written that paper. And so I said, well, you know, maybe I can do something with this because <laughs> I don't know anything else. So, um, so I did, I did more research and I came up with a paper uh, and a design for a research, a very simple research project. And the professor really liked it. And he wrote on there, um, you know, I think this has potential. I actually think you could turn it into an Academy of Management Review article, which wow. is, I know, this is my first semester in the PhD program. And You're so, like, wow, this is pretty easy for me. Well, <laughs> I, it, it scared me. I didn't know what oh. to do with it. So, I went to him and talked to him and, and, you know, an Academy Management Review is our conceptual journal. So it's like, you know, developing theory. Mm-hmm. About and so I went home that summer um, because I was living in Galveston, Texas and just, you know, Texas A&M is on the West side of Houston. And uh, I said, I'm going to work on this paper. Uh, over the summer. And anyway, long story short, um, it used to be my most highly cited paper. It isn't anymore, but it's been cited thousands of times. And it it is thought of as a paper that kind of launched this um, Kind of social science perspective on um, ethical decision making in organizations, and so that's the kind of that's part of the story. Um, later on, I had more of a personal insight, which is that um, so my my family narrative is. Uh, that my parents were Holocaust survivors. Mm. And I grew up in, you know, in a family um, that, I mean, my my mother was only seven years old when she came to this country. My father was a teenager. Um, But, you know, the families had lived through this. Um, My grandfathers had both had very bad experiences, including one who was in a work camp, which is what they called them before the war. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up kind of wanting to know more about why people did bad things and why people did good things. Cause there were good people who helped people and tried to hide people. And right. so there were, there was both sides. And I think I don't remember exactly when this popped into my head. I think I was writing the, um, you know, the intro to my textbook. Um, I actually decided I had to write a textbook because there wasn't a textbook I wanted to use to teach business ethics. I wanted to write it from a management perspective, not the Mm. philosophy perspective. And so I was writing, you know, the introduction to that. And I, I, it just like a light bulb went on in my head and I went, oh my gosh, I get it now. Why have I been motivated for 35 years, <laughs> you know, to study this stuff? Um, okay, I get it now. You know, it, it took me a while. I mean, I, I could tell the other story, which makes sense, you know, the steps that kind of led to but it doesn't explain the motivation. Doesn't really. That sort of base it. root motivation. The like that's the strong force kind of behind all the, the yeah. integral steps or whatever that that you can point to. It's that sort of gale force tailwind. Yeah. So that's why I'm uh, big on refugees. Help them any way you can. Yeah. Because if you know if the U.S. hadn't taken my parents' families, I would not be here. <laughs> To have this conversation with you yeah, today. My uh, my dad was a Cuban refugee after Castro took over. So it's a similar, obviously it's not the Holocaust, but 
that thing of welcoming, wel welcoming refugees with open arms is the basis of my family's entire sort of existence in this country. Exactly. Yeah. And look at how wonderful we are. See, this is like one of our best episodes ever. This would have never happened. <laughs> so um, I love this uh, conversation. Um, I feel like you and I could probably keep talking for another, you know, two hours. Um, when you're looking at the sort of next 10 years, so here's my kind of theory. I think that there's a lot of vestigial structures that are, are overhangs from the industrial revolution, a lot of hierarchical uh, organizational structures that don't really correspond or work with the knowledge work economy. These, those perhaps work in organizing an army, those perhaps work in having a bunch of uh, people punching out you know, widgets on a, a big machine, but now as exacerbated by the work from home and the new normal and all that stuff, we really are our work. And that is coinciding with this generational shift that's happening where the prioritizations are very different, right? My grandfather would tell me, housing always goes up, always put some extra money in your house. I saw friends and families' lives get shattered by the housing crisis along with a dozen other bubbles that have sort of inflated and burst and so forth. And I think I'm not unique in my generation in feeling that we're all going to have a hierarchy of like priorities. We're all going to have a hierarchy of values. And to the extent that those are different, you know, they're, they're going to largely be the same, but they're on a nuanced level. I think they're going to be different. And I think that's the basis for why a lot of these new generations are looked at by maybe people who are of a previous generation uh, who are in positions of power in our organizations as like kind of weird or kind of crazy. And with the labor mobility, where it is the work from home, where it is, there's no, like, it's not that surprising that this great resignation is happening and that this, you know, I mean, you can, there are people on my team, literally, that I've never met face to face, and they've been working with us for well over a year at this point, right? So that's not uncommon, whereas five, 10 years ago, no one could ever even like wrap their head around that. So all that I think is creating this really unique opportunity for people who are in an organizational ethics and compliance department or are in a sort of people first HR department um, to really be this strategic lever in their organizations if they can start taking a hold of some of the things that you're talking about and driving that culture forward. Because I think last century, there was this big sort of separation and they were almost viewed as two different entities or two different things, the two things being the sort of external brand and the internal brand. The, the external brand is what's on the commercial. The internal brand is the sort of employee experience. Well, those are collapsed to like one sort of infinitesimally small like barrier. You know what I'm saying? It's one thing. And um, that, you know, coupled with like the American dream is not being a millionaire. Most people in my generation don't even think that that's possible. It's having a purpose or, you know, working in a place that you feel is doing good in, in the world. So it's like, there's, there's all of these factors that are sort of kind of coming together that seems to create a little bit of a window here over the next maybe five or 10 years for organizations to really authentically, right. Cause we are very well in tune to like inauthenticity and like social greenwashing or whatever you want to call it to authentically grab hold of the stuff you're talking about to make our workplaces better. To your point, we spend so much time at work. Why not make them better? And then also, I think, I think the new ethosphere thing came out today or something, or maybe this oh. week. And like the premium is up to like 24% now, you know, the premium of like ethical companies versus non-ethical. So even for the myopic, like, you know, pragmatic business person, whatever, that bottom line impact is meaningful. It's statistically significant and you can actually point to it. So I'd love for you to kind of react to this vision of this opportunity. I think that's on our, on, you know, that we're on the precipice of and give us some wisdom that folks who are maybe listening to this can, you know, breathe in and like put into practice in their organization. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm, I'm a little old fashioned uh, about what's possible because I think that the senior leadership, especially the CEO matters more than anything else. Um, and if I were running an ethics and compliance operation and I didn't see the CEO as an ethical leader who was out there, um, really out there, <laughs> um, I think I would try to find a different gig. Um, so I like to call the CEO the chief ethics officer. You, there's a lot you can delegate and have to because you're the CEO and you have a lot of other stuff to do. But 
people need to see you as representing the values of the organization every single day and everything you do and talking about them and holding everybody accountable to them. And, you know, I was just reading, you probably read about this too, the, the, I mean, we're having some interesting things happening with um, politics and, and even the Ukraine war and, and, mm-hmm. and organizations trying to figure out, you know, what they should do and how they should behave. But the, the example that I was thinking about was the um, CEO of Disney who has put his foot in his mouth about three different times now uh, in the last week or so um, about the don't say gay law in Florida. So, I mean, they're really big in Florida. They've got Disney World. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have a ton of gay employees who they probably can't afford to lose. And they're, you know, supporting the political campaigns of the person who brought the don't say gay law, the governor who's pushing the don't say gay law and these other people who are um, voting for the, I think they passed it, I don't know. Anyway, he he could not seem to get the words right. <laughs> because I it don't was almost think, comically bad, yeah. It was comically bad and you know, his own employees are really angry and I don't blame them. Um, And so, you know, if you can't trust the CEO to stand for what you have, you know, on your website about your values, um, they're not, I don't think there's all that much you can really do. Um, now, you know, there are things you can do at a unit level to protect your people and try to create a nice ethical culture at that level, um, depending on, you know, how corrosive or toxic the, the big culture is. But honestly, I think it flows from the top. It needs to come from the center out. And then, you know, then everybody can work together, you know, to to create an ethical culture that that works and is aligned and all pushing in the same direction. Um, So I'm really big on, you know, looking at CEOs very carefully, uh, not just their ability to, um, you know, whatever they've done in the past to be able to make the numbers. Because what we're seeing now is that everything they do is out there on social media. You can't. Yeah, right. You can't hide anymore, right? You you can't be this quiet CEO who sits, you know, in in the office and lets other people do these things. So, yeah. So that's a that's a big one for me is the uh, leadership, uh, and I'm also, <laughs> I guess, I'm Debbie Downer here, but. Um, I also, I also think that the, um, I think we're going, obviously things have changed a lot and, and we're going to see some permanent changes and, and all of that is good. Um, or a lot of that is good, I guess, not all of it probably, but, um, I've also heard people talk about the fact that there's, there's a limit so you say, you know, you've worked with people for a year and you haven't even met them and, you know, they're all great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may depend on the people, but, um, you know, I know somebody who took a job like that and after a year said, you know what, I need people. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I need to see people. This, it's not like there's, to your point, there's, it's not like there's no trade-offs. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot that ends up getting lost in the lack of translation, so to speak. Like there's a lot of conversations that happen passing somebody in the hall or meeting by exactly. somebody's desk. And a lot of those, those are all little threads in the sort of tapestry that is the culture of an organization. And or if the only in, or in the break room, exactly. Or, or even yeah. on the way to the washroom or walking into the car or out of the car, there's all those little 
all those yeah. little conversations and all those little nodes in the, uh, in the network that can be, you know, reinforcements of that culture and reestablishments of it that are really harder to sort of synthetically recreate via Zoom. So the, the CEO came to my class yesterday, um, it was really interesting because he said, you know, if you have a great culture, you know, things can go great for six months, you know, maybe even 12 months. He said by 18 months, he said, I saw things because they weren't traveling, they, you know, totally. all the things that they were doing before. He said, he said it was starting to unravel. Um, and he's a he's a very astute guy and a very ethical guy. He cares about the ethical culture of his organization. And, you know, so he's traveling again. Um, He's going and Mm -hmm. talking to people and interacting. And um, so I I don't want people to get the idea that they don't have to do that. You know, know, that's true. Yeah. Well, it's like everything in life. It seems like nothing grows on like this linear progression. It's, you know, that saying, you know, it happened little by little and all at once. Or, you know, the overnight success that took 20 years, or, I mean, everything is this sort of like logarithmic where it's approaching a limit and then it, and then it turns. That's how everything happens, it seems. And we just, as humans, can't seem to not think in these linear terms where, well, it wasn't that bad yesterday. How bad could tomorrow be? Uh, Well, all these, all these different factors that we can't sort of account for and start to compound and like, who knows whether this, you know, great work from home experiment can actually sustain, like, is it going to be 10 years from now and we're all in the metaverse? meeting, uh, you know, maybe the metaverse solved it. I don't know. Um, but I, I just don't know how sustainable it is, but the fact of the fact of the matter is private equity funds are buying companies after having never met leadership, which again, five years ago would have never happened. You know what I'm saying people are hiring and working together. It's a bad idea. It's still a it bad may idea. be, I mean, it may be, um, it's you know, all that, all that management by walking around is gone. Not all of it. Obviously there's people that are in office and stuff like that, but I'm saying largely there was so much of and there's a large portion of the like population, you know, to the extent that, you know, half of the population are very objective. The other half are very, are very subjective. And if assuming there's like an even distribution of those different sort of diametrically opposed personality types, there's a bunch of management by walking around a bunch of vibe checks that aren't happening that right. can't be really gathered on a Zoom call or something like that, you know? Right. And I guess we don't know yet, you know, what. Did we just solve the great resignation? Did we just solve the call, the cause? We just solved it together. I'm kidding. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, This was really a lot of fun. Um, Where can people uh, find some of your famous papers? Where, where, where can they learn more about the work that you're doing and get in touch if they have questions? Well, I'm easy to find. Um, my email is ltrevino at psu.edu. So that's really simple. Um, you can just stick my name in Google and whew, I'm right Boom. there. I can't hide. Um, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to go to um, Google Scholar, I don't know if people use that. Yeah. But, you know, scholar.google.com. Put my name in, and I usually um, publish under my. My middle name is in there. Uh, so it's Linda Kleeb, K-L-E-B as in boy, E, Trevino, and, um, or Linda K. And, um, you know, I, I've published, uh, you know, over 90 articles. And uh, I do have a textbook that is not a typical textbook that I yeah. do know ethics and compliance officers that have have it on their shelf um, because it, it's called managing business ethics. And there's a lot of, a lot of the research that I've done and other people have done is really reviewed in there, but in a way that's accessible. So yeah, business focused. Yeah. So if, well, not just business focused, but, you know, practitioner focused so yeah. that you can read, you know, you don't have to read a, uh, an article with all the statistics and all that stuff that people right. don't want to, you know, have to digest. So um, I actually recommend that because, so it was just recently updated and um, it's got a lot of the current research um, reviewed in there. And if, you know, if you care to, you can look at the end of the chapter and see what the articles were. Um, but 
you know, you don't, I know my students don't do that. You don't have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And that book is called Managing Business Ethics, right? Yep. Awesome. Managing Business Ethics is Trevino and Nelson. And it's available on Amazon and uh, the publisher is John Wiley. Very cool. I-L-E-Y. Well, this was really a lot of fun. I feel like I learned a lot. Uh, Thanks for for joining us and being so generous with your perspective and your time. And uh, until next time. Okay. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.